I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hello, this is Bill Bupert, and welcome to Episode 31, U.S. Military Special Operations Forces Can't Do Unconventional Warfare. In administrative note, this is part one of two, because in the next one, I will be tackling U.S. Military Special Operations Forces Can't Do Counter Unconventional Warfare, and I wanted to bifurcate this into two different parts so that we could acquaint ourselves with the problem set. It was Einstein himself who said that setting up the proper questions for a problem that's in front of you is going to be able to better allow you to frame and possibly answer and possibly solve said problems. And a corollary to that, and I can't credit Einstein for this, is that if something isn't a problem, it remains insoluble, and maybe there isn't a solution to it in the first place, which in turn makes it not a problem. A few admin notes. Many, many uh, thanks for all of my listeners who have written in with their kind remarks, recommendations, questions, things like that. It is very rare that I get the individual contacting me who's rude or seems to or must employ ad hominem argumentation to counter my points instead of substantial refutation, which I really appreciate. Uh, Special thanks to JB and GZ. You guys know who you are. Really enjoy the correspondence. Makes me smarter. And I'm able to fill in some of the intelligence and information gaps that forever plague me in my pursuit of what's going on in this particular arcane and esoteric knowledge space. As you know, if you wish to correspond, you can send me an email at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. Much appreciated. So you know I'm a stickler for making sure that we have an informational and vocabulary consensus on what exactly we're talking about so that we can speak more rationally to whatever it is that we're approaching. In this case, I have a homework assignment for my listeners. If you're anticipating the second part of this two-part episode that I'm going to do on unconventional warfare, and that would be there is a 40, it's a 47-page PDF document from 2014, 26 September 2014. It's a counter-unconventional warfare white paper from the U.S. Army Special Operations Command. It is Colonel Maxwell, and I highly recommend that if you're interested in my fortnightly rhythm of doing these, in the new year when it comes and I issue my second part of this short series on unconventional warfare, you may be better prepared for the information we'll discuss in that second episode. If you've been a listener to my podcast since episode one, this will simply be reinforcement learning. And uh, if you're new to the podcast, welcome aboard. What is traditional warfare? Well, according to Joint Publication 1, because I like to employ the U.S. DOD's functional terms in this so that we have a consensus on the reality that we're discussing, they call it, quote, a violent struggle for domination between nation states or coalitions and alliances of nation states 
With the increasingly rare case of formally declared war, traditional warfare typically involves force-on-force military operations in which adversaries employ a variety of conventional forces and special operations forces against each other in all physical domains as well as the informational environment, in parentheses, which includes cyberspace. That's from JP1, and that's the end of that quote. Now, in fairness to the U.S. Army and the DOD and the various forces commands, multi-domain operations is all the rage right now in which they are trying to include what I just described as traditional or conventional warfare and what some have described as adjacent gray zone and hybrid forms of warfare, as we've seen the Russians conduct in most of the 21st century within their regional hegemonic space. If anybody is writing the book on how to competently conduct that kind of warfare, it would certainly be the Russians. When you look at Osatia, when you look at Georgia, when you look at what's happened in the Ukraine 2008, 2014, and with the special military operation in 2022, to include the Russian sponsorship of their client state in Nagorno-Karabakh in the fall of 2020 between Armenia and Azerbaijan when it came to the conduct of that particular short, sharp conflict in which they employed things beyond conventional means that were very well orchestrated to include the employment of you. Now, you'll find if you start digging around in unconventional warfare, for instance, the Wikipedia page, which please... I urge you, don't always trust, uh, check footnotes, read stuff, and make sure that the um, information you're getting seems to be the single most accurate picture because Wikipedia is, of course, notorious for being not only woke but historically inaccurate and not really caring about making things accurate as long as, as a critical drinker says, the message is served. Now, So you take a look at that page, you take a look at the various things that are available to you from, let's say, Joint Special Operations University or the DOD pubs or whatever special forces or special operations forces publications you may be able to download and find, for instance, in JP3-05, quote, activities conducted to enable a resistance movement or insurgency to coerce, disrupt, or overthrow a government or occupying power by operating through or with an underground auxiliary and guerrilla force in a denied area. End of quote, JP3-05. I want to pull apart and tease out some of those terms for you in case you are not familiar with them. You'll note here this is not coin, this is insurgency. This is support of insurgency. And also that overthrow a government or occupying power, because what happens is you will have three distinct templates for a insurgency to conduct itself. Number one, it seeks to overthrow the government and take it over in total. Number two, it hopes to take a portion of the geographical constraints under the present government and dominate that as a political modality by itself, separated, seceded, or nullified from the overweening government they're fighting in the first place, or in concert or against an occupying power, much like, what, much like what has happened with the Western nations in Iraq and Afghanistan and what happens with that. The sheer volume of RAND studies, official government studies, university studies, material that's available out there on unconventional warfare is legion, but not a lot of it addresses, in my mind, the realistic ability 
for America, or its Western allies in this case, to conduct effective unconventional warfare. And as I mentioned, as far as countering unconventional warfare, that is very well conducted by other near-peer, peer, or even developing nations. We'll cover that in part two of this short series. There's an unconventional warfare pocket guide that was published in 2016 by the uh, USASOC Command, U.S. Army Special Operations Command by the uh, Sensitive Activities Division, G3X, and I would, I would urge you, you can find it on the net, so I'm assuming, despite this coming from the Sensitive Activities Division, it is available on the net if you want it. It's 44 pages. Uh, download it. Take a look at it. See what you think. But at least they also provide us with some framework terms and unconventional warfare overviews, what the core activities are, uh, the terms that we've employed. I've gone over two of those. And again, the one I, I want to read a couple out of this. So if you go to page six, you find that it reads, Guerrilla Force, a group of irregular, predominantly indigenous personnel organized along military lines to conduct military and paramilitary operations in enemy-held, hostile, or denied territory. End of quote. That was extracted from JP Joint Publication 3-05. Uh, denied areas. Let's tease this out because I have an important observation to make. An area under enemy or unfriendly control in which friendly forces cannot expect to operate successfully within existing operational constraints and force capabilities. End of quote. What those last five words mean, existing operational constraints and force capabilities, is that this would be what the military and some other organizations within the, uh, the whole of government apparatus in the West refers to as permissive and non-permissive. What permissive means is that one could easily fly there in an airliner or a military-sanctioned aircraft into a nation that is either allied, neutral, or friendly to America or the West or whatever coalition forces are going there. And they're not making a forced entry or anything like that. They're being permitted to go there, land on an airfield, deploy, a ship comes to port, it disembarks, whatever the case may be. Those are permissive environments. Non-permissive environments are where a forced entry is required or if it is clandestine or covert and as I have schooled my listeners in the past, in case this is your first episode, the distinction between covert and clandestine is that covert, just uh, take the T off, think of cover, where you are going there under a cover and conducting military or paramilitary activities, using that cover, that cover as an entry modality to get there. Clandestine is black to black. It is black origin. It is black conduct. It is black reconstitution. It is black repatriation back to uh, return to base and then conducting the operations. What we discover when it comes to non-permissive is that a, a lot of conventional warfare, of course, takes place in a non-permissive environment because in that case, it is not clandestine or covert, but overt that the forces are fighting with each, with each other with every military capability that they have mud to space to conduct warfare and conventional conflict. What I'm trying to tease out here as a very specific construct is that despite all the noise that one hears in Hollywood or the triumphalist narrative from government officials or even from the DOD and the Pentagon, the capability of U.S. forces and allied forces to effectively fight unconventional warfare 
by going into non-permissive environments in hostile countries and raising, whether they're near-peer, non-peer, or peer, and raising partisan forces behind enemy lines to execute actions against the rear or the flanks of enemies and surprise attacks, or to conduct gray zone and hybrid warfare, whether that would be cyberspace, simple sabotage operations, sophisticated sabotage operations, whatever the case may be, the braggadocio and ambition of the West far exceeds its actual capability to conduct that kind of warfare. Now, let's take a step back and ask ourselves, in, a, in an ongoing conflict, for the most part, we've discovered that there are very good historical examples of these kind of unconventional operations succeeding. I will confine myself, for instance, to the 20th century, but we could go back all the way to the Romans, the Greeks, and East and West up until 1914, and we discover that there's plenty of that that's been happening. For instance, I've mentioned in previous episodes about what Spanish guerrillas did disproportionately and at a ratio far greater than the forces that they actually fielded to really cause a significant martial pain to Napoleon in his conquest of the Iberian Peninsula. But we're going to fast forward to the 20th century of World War I, and we're going to talk about a fellow briefly, because I want to do an entire episode or an episode series. This would be the only German general on November 11th of 1918 who stands undefeated on the entire planet after Germany surrenders to the Allies in that particular conflict, which, of course, we all know was the preamble and shaping conditions for World War II to come because of the behavior of the Allies after November 11th. In German East Africa, if you take a look at a map, you can find out where that is and and take a look at some of the sources that are on the net. And there aren't as many sources on General Paul Emil von Leto Vorbeck as there should be, in my mind, an astonishing martial feat that I think stands in the annals of all human warfare throughout human history as just extraordinary in so many ways. Here you have a general who was pretty much for two or three years cut off from his main supply lines from his mother country, in this case Germany, to conduct the defense of Germany's very late-blooming colonial enterprises in southern Africa, And he does it with 10,000 Schutztruppe, who are, for the most part, black and natives and indigenous forces from Africa proper. It is white-officered, as was the colonial way at the time, Western colonial way. And potentially, the estimates of total force was 10 to 12,000. The estimate of total force in the aggregate set against General Leto Vorbeck during the last two years of World War I by the Allies was estimated to be near 50 generals total and near 450,000 troops, both colonial levies and actual European troops sent down there to stop him from the ravaging raids, harassment, ambuscades, and all the other mischief he was conducting literally behind enemy allied lines and in support of the late-blooming colonial holdings by Germany in Africa at the time. And he did an absolutely extraordinary job in outfitting, being in logistical isolation, maintaining the morale of his troops, and those kind of things. 
Now, that would be the outstanding example from World War I. Now, of course, we can see that T.E. Lawrence and Michael Collins in Ireland at the end of World War I through 1922. Here you had insurgent commanders, captains of history, who are well-regarded and who I consider to be the peak guerrilla phase, probably, of the 20th century. And by peak guerrilla, I don't mean that those were the only guerrilla incidents or those were the most outstanding guerrilla incidents of the 20th century. But when you look at that, that triumvirate, this trio of Collins, Leto Vorbeck, and Lawrence, you see coming together in cylinders of excellence because they had no communication with each other, these really outstanding historical examples of conscious and unconscious competence in conducting guerrilla warfare, both behind enemy lines and against governments that were occupying countries. For instance, the English occupation of Ireland for 800 years, where their control was wrested, to the, wrested from them between 1920 and 1922, for the most part by Michael Collins. Not to say that Michael Collins didn't have a really able stable of colleagues and fellow military commanders who made that happen and brought it to the fruition that it was. As I said, I'm confining myself to the 20th century when it comes to reviewing what's going on here and what we find between World War I and World War II, and we're going to call that between 1918 and 1939, is that guerrilla activities haven't ceased. And what we're seeing here is the rumblings of the pre-colonial diaspora and blasting that occurs after World War II, where almost every colonial power on Earth is in the hazard as far as holding on to those colonies because of indigenous activities that start to occur, both martial and not so martial and bandied together, that cause these colonies to disintegrate. For instance, as I've mentioned before in previous episodes, you have the British Empire almost at its zenith at the end of the 19th century, and then between 1945 and 1950, for the most part, especially with the departure of the of the Indian Raj from the British crown, they are left with rocks like Pitcairn, Ascension, Diego Garcia, and other areas around the earth, and not significant countries. They did hold on in the Middle East, but we see that even in places like Oman and, and Malaya and things like that, things started to go awry and fall apart. One can say that when you step back and look at where unconventional warfare is, it is at center stage when it comes to after World War II, but it's also st center stage in the Orchid House concentrations in World War I or World War II, where those guerrillas and insurgents who participated in that unconventional warfare throughout most of the 20th century really cut their teeth and sharpened their martial knives in World War I, the interregnum between World War I and World War II, and World War II, which, of course, we find this fascinating, I don't believe in coincidence, Ian Fleming taught me that, this fascinating thing happening after World War II where all those colonial powers fall apart as far as their colonial holdings. And as I've mentioned in previous episodes, we also see that all of a sudden, these colonies aren't surrendered in a fashion by the near-peer and peer powers that had them before, what happens is we see a slow, gradual transition into what's called insurgency, counterinsurgency, 
con unconventional warfare and guerrillas and things like that. And what they're doing is they are recharacterizing the colonial wars and small wars that have been fought for hundreds of years previously. In the interregnum between World War I and World War II, the world was not at peace. The world was at war in many fashions. And many of those places, for instance, the resistance against the French occupation in Algeria was at a slow hum. The resistance against the French occupation in Indochina was also really starting to rev up during that time, where by 1945, we have the OSS, the precursor to the Central Intelligence Agency. This would be the American Office of Strategic Services. The U.S. complement to the SOE, which, which was the Special Operations Executive in the U.K., what Churchill referred to as his Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, and they were starting to see, those who were paying attention were starting to see that these movements, these nascent movements in these countries to include, we can go as far as what the Italians had faced in the 1930s and Ethiopia and other revolutionary movements. I've just introduced that term, revolutionary movements. A uh, good friend of mine, B.U., he and I have had some great conversations. Thank you, BU, for these uh, conversations concerning revolutionary warfare. When you look at the British Special Air Service and the SAS, they characterize themselves as counter-revolutionary warfare organizations, which is something that hasn't been adopted by America, but is almost a synonym for counterinsurgency. Now, during World War II, the conduct of unconventional warfare in non-permissive environments is very well documented, whether it is the OSS and the SOE and Jedberg teams that they dropped into Europe at the time to do what Churchill called set Europe ablaze. And there are many great books out there that I would recommend about Mr. Gubbins, who started the SOE and what happened with the OSS. And take a look at things like the Simple Sabotage Manual from 1945, that was published by the SOE. A lot of stuff where there was a critical mass building in the West where they were taking unconventional warfare and non-permissive environments seriously. And then, of course, we have British support and later U.S. support of the Chetniks and the Partisans and the Communists fighting the Nazi occupation of Yugoslavia and the great strides that were made in that. We have the Soviets employing vast, large partisan operations with battalion, brigade, and sometimes regimental size organizations in the occupied parts of Russia as a result of Barbarossa in 1941. Very effective organizations. So the pricey abstract and bottom line of this episode is that despite the emergence of unconventional warfare, despite the ability of, in this case, Western practitioners to do it, pull it off, even bring it into the realm of unconscious competence in their armed forces and ancillary forces' ability to do it, that is no longer the case. And I would suggest that it is the United States and all of its allies are totally incapable of conducting unconventional warfare and the raising, training, and fighting of force multiplier partisan forces in non-permissive environments behind enemy lines. We simply don't have the capacity, capability, or will to do it, it seems. Now, of course, 
There is an ambition, and talk is cheap with the DoD, as all of us know, but as far as the fruition of an actual UW capability, remember, this is one of the five tenets of U.S. Army Special Forces. As a matter of fact, in 1952, when the first U.S. Army Special Forces battalions, this would be 10th Group, were officially raised and staffed, this was their primary job, was going to be to fight the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union if a hot conventional conflict emerged where they would go behind enemy lines, raise these partisan forces of friendly or neutral soldiery fighting behind the Russian lines or behind the Warsaw Pact and the Eastern European lines prior to the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1989 to 1991. The capacity was there, but the track record isn't very good. For instance, if we take a look at the CIA, which I think for various reasons has done tremendous damage to the U.S.'s moral capital and reputation worldwide since its formation in 1947 to 1948 for various reasons. But if we bifurcate its two missions, one was intelligence gathering and assessment and analysis for the whole of government in the United States to make better assessments on how to conduct rational and worthwhile foreign policy. The bifurcation was that, and then you had covert action. Sexy stuff, covered in Hollywood a lot, whether it's the boring Jean Le Carré novels, which seem to be pretty close to what espionage may really look like, I don't know, to the James Bond franchises, and now we have these paramilitary franchises to include terrific movies, in my regard, in my opinion, such as 13 Hours and things like that, where they're talking about contractors connected to three-letter agencies in... Uh, countries that may not have been hostile at the time in the case of 13 hours in Libya, where uh, in a 24-hour period of time, everything changes. And it's also a result of the absolute incompetence and inability of three-letter agencies, the CIA especially, to have the cultural IQ to do things right and not rake-stomp themselves in nearly everything that they do. I urge all of you to get a chance to read Michael Weiner's book, Legacy of Ashes, and also another one by Ann Jacobson called Surprise, Kill, Vanish, which happened to be, I think, either an SOE or an OSS slogan for the Jetberg teams that were dropped behind enemy lines during World War II in the European theater of operations. And what you'll find is this, this absolute abysmal track record of what happened. For instance, they would train up soldiers, ancillaries, auxiliaries, and and uh, folks friendly to U.S. interest, parachute them behind enemy lines, in this case in the 1950s, and even to the 1960s, to conduct underground paramilitary or sabotage or just espionage operations. And the intelligence was so bad, the the formation of the organizations was so bad that the moment they would drop into a DZ, they would disappear because the Soviets or their Eastern European allies in the Warsaw Pact under Soviet control would scarf them up. Who knows how many were imprisoned, tortured, and or dead as a result of these terribly ill-designed and ill-equipped operations conducted by the CIA. For some reason, the USSR and Russia have always been very good 
at foreign intelligence operations, espionage operations, and things like this. I suspect not only is it part of the Russian character to be able to do that, but it's also what happens when you have a centrally planned economy and you have a large authoritarian state for which surveillance and intelligence organizations are such a vital part of the maintenance of that power structure. I think it lends them in expertise and espionage operations that the West may not be acquainted with or very good at. I've had some folks, my listeners, write into me and say, but Bill, in October, November, December 2001 in Afghanistan, shortly after September 11th, 9-1-1, what we had was we had forces from the glorious 5th Special Forces Group out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. I am a 101st Airborne alumnus, 3rd of the 502nd, proud of that, and uh, I had some friends who were in 5th Special Forces Group well before what happened in 2001. And we have them dropping in and linking up with the Northern Alliance, getting on horseback. I think Hollywood has covered this. There's some books on it. And remember, a lot of that is fiction because that's what Hollywood has to do with narratives. And they, they dropped in, rode horses, brought pallets of cash, brought pallets of munitions, brought pallets of rations, brought all kinds of air support and things like that. And for the most part, there was this critical golden moment in 2001 where the Northern Alliance may have been able to best the Taliban. It didn't happen for a variety of reasons, whether it was the premature pullout of these forces that have been there for a little over two months and the takeover by Big Army, 82nd, 101st, fill in the blank with the division that would eventually rotate into Afghanistan and Iraq. You cannot conduct counterinsurgencies with those kind of big organizations in country because it won't fare well. But then again, here I am at episode 31 trying to compel and convince those who will listen to me. And those people aren't in the Pentagon and those people aren't at JSAO and they aren't at SOCOM and they aren't in the Army. I address myself to the general public because when it comes to drinking the Coindanista Kool-Aid, where they all think, oh, yeah, we can make this work if we try harder. I being that single-digit percentage with Douglas Porch, John Gentile, myself, and several others who are cointers who don't think that Western counterinsurgency can ever be conducted in any fashion. Well, here we are. But nonetheless, here we have yet another example where the possibility was there of success and then... Victory was swallowed in the jaws of defeat. A slight aside, Taliban takes control in 1996. They best three presidents, maybe four, and they managed to make the West spend trillions of dollars, and now they're back in power, thanks to the current administration. But I would not hold the current administration as the primary mover and shaker or a reason for the defeat in Afghanistan. This has happened over years, if not decades, and of course, as you know from previous conversations, our meddling in the Middle East has had effects that we simply don't understand. The unintended consequences, the second, third order effects, weren't templated or even forecasted correctly by all of the bigwigs and smart people who inhabit the government and the NGOs that influence American foreign policy. As an aside, 
if you happen to be a, a present member of the whole of government, whatever agency you may belong to, and you accidentally stumbled into my podcast here, if there's anything I want you to remember, and I'd like to thank Brett Weinstein at the Dark Horse podcast for this, and that's the concept of Chesterton, Chesterton's fence. That's G.K. Chesterton of the early 20th century. Uh, in, uh, in his book, Chesterton describes the classic case of the reformer who notices something such as a fence and fails to see the reason for its existence. Chesterton's fence is a simple rule of thumb that suggests that you should never destroy a fence, change a rule, or do away with a tradition until you understand why it's there in the first place. The principle assumes that fences have a purpose, were carefully planned, cost time and money to erect. Uh, Burke talked about this with his Democracy of the Dead and the Little Platoons, where he talked about there's reason things happen that may be intuitive or counterintuitive, but there's a reason that they work so well, even though you may not consciously be able to grok why that is. For instance, why do nuclear families work so well, for the most part, in rearing children? Well, that's because for a long time, it's become both through intuition engines and the ability not quite to describe why it works. It simply works because humans are built on incentives. In other words, don't destroy what you don't understand. And if there's anything that's occurred since 1945, and I wouldn't say that this is the root cause, but this is certainly a proximate cause of all the problems, is that all of these agencies and NGOs and triumphalist applauders in the population have pressed for foreign policy initiatives and wars and small wars and conflicts large and small to go across, do these things, and think that Newton's third law is not going to instantiate itself in any fashion whatsoever. Don't destroy what you don't understand. I so wish that on every agency, and I think this, this, this applies to everything that government does, have this in, in, a, in, in a huge font on a huge poster in every office, in every agency, and make people pay attention to it every morning. Rant off. R.W. Bradford of Liberty Magazine, rest in peace, Mr. Bradford, came up with something that really struck me years ago that I've always used as a marker, a template, and a measurement tool for how efficacious, effective, or morally correct something is. And he said, what is the moral correctness of something, and what is its effectiveness to achieve an end state? And in that case... If we use those two markers, we can ask ourselves, well, what will we achieve by doing this? I do wish that, in concert with Chesterton's fence, was used more often. But, of course, we see that it isn't because it appears, and maybe our political system in the West, especially in America, incentivizes this kind of behavior. But to extrapolate the second and third order effects of what one is doing, as uncomfortable as that may make you, is really at the heart of all of the missteps, bad gambles, and lost lives and treasure overseas, for instance, in this very narrow band of conflict that we tend to examine on this podcast. 
Now, when it comes to the conduct of unconventional warfare, remember, I'm very specific in what I'm calling that. I am calling that the raising of indigenous partisan forces behind enemy lines in non-permissive environments, and do we have a force structure in America or the West to serve that? And my answer for you is no. Now, I'm a very low-funded operation. As a matter of fact, I support my family and my extended family on my salary. I don't have the millions or billions of dollars to examine this with a host of think tanks, governmental agencies, research institutions, universities to come to a conclusion about this. But on my lonesome, with my very minimal skills and my very minimal salary, I have come to the apprehension that unconventional warfare within the constraints I just described is impossible. It's impossible for a variety of reasons. Number one, language skills. We simply don't have the language skills in the U.S. military. Remember, when I say the U.S. military, I tend to be talking about NATO and friendly nations in Asia, such as Korea and Japan and the Philippines, who are in the construct of the Western enterprise of conflict that, that we've seen since the end of World War II. These language skills, as much ballyhooed as they were in the 50s and 60s for special forces, what you found was they tended to do two things. Number one, there were European languages by folks who happened to have been European emigres who either escaped or made their way across after World War II to America. Then, of course, we have the Iron Curtain fall, and we have the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union. We need people who can speak those low-density European languages. And we had a ready supply of folks who had not only spoken the language but happened to have fought in that war. Don't have that now. Then, of course, we have 7th Special Forces Group, which is our Spanish, Latin American, Monroe Doctrine Special Forces Group that specializes in going from the northern border of Mexico all the way out down to Tierra del Fuego in Argentina and everything in between to conduct the operations down there. Spanish as a language, I don't want to diminish it, but it's easier than most, certainly easier than Mandarin. So I would say when it comes to Spanish language constructs, we probably have that locked and loaded. When it comes to European or even Russian or Mandarin Chinese or whatever other kind of potential 5, 10, 15, 20-year intermediate peer, peer conflict and near-peer conflicts we have in the future where we may need partisan forces who have those language capabilities, not so much. Cultural IQ, we find again and again, and if you're a regular listener to my podcast, I've given you morbid examples of where cultural IQ has failed so spectacularly in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya in Syria, and now what we're seeing going on between Israel and Gaza, there are certainly cultural IQ things that are going on there that are causing extreme difficulties. And also imagine this, where would the sophisticated intelligence infrastructure to support stay-behind missions be? Because that intelligence infrastructure would depend on two things. Number one, you would have to have secure communications that couldn't be intercepted while behind enemy lines raising these partisan forces, and you would have to have hardy intelligence folks on the ground who would live there in long loiter conditions, probably conditions that are unfavorable to what they're used to in Western opulence and luxury. And if you don't have that intelligence infrastructure, 
you're not going to succeed in prosecuting missions behind enemy lines because one of the advantages, of course, that we should pride ourselves on with giving those who have lesser militaries than us is not only our communications infrastructure in the West, but also our intelligence infrastructure to create actionable intelligence. A slight aside, think of information as this vast ocean. It's everything that we read and apprehend, everything from the the consumption of, of modern media, popular culture, whatever your arcane historical interest may be, and the library that you've accumulated on that, that is information. Intelligence is going to be those things that for a very specific reason are very important to the prosecution or execution of an enterprise that you're involved in. Actionable intelligence is a tiny little dot within intelligence itself that would be actionable over 24 hours, 48 hours, maybe six months, maybe one year, if you plan it correctly, over either a short-term or extended period of time that would allow you to meet a target in a non-kinetic or kinetic fashion. Those things won't exist right now, especially when it comes to the prosecution of raising partisan forces and near-peer and peer forces and future conflicts. Comprehensive bush, bushcraft and primitive skills for these long loiter missions. I'm proud of uh, having supported special forces. I'm proud of having supported SOF. I'm, uh, I'm in awe of the skill sets of so many of my brethren there in the carnivore class who could do so many great things. But I hope I'm not hurting any feelings when I say this, but when it comes to long loiter, primitive living and bushcraft conditions, you guys don't have it. And it's not because you don't have the native wit, intelligence, cunning, and skill to do so. It's because the government simply doesn't support anything beyond short-range, short-fuse mission sets and don't envision it in their martial imagination. It simply isn't there. And then we have this. Living in third-world countries, developing countries, having spent, for instance, two years myself in Afghanistan, I didn't live like an Afghan. I lived like a Westerner. Now, I lived in a Connex, but it was comfortable. I had an HVAC. It was comfortable. I had food. It was great. Didn't live like an Afghan. Never lived like an Iraqi. Haven't lived like a Libyan. Nor have I lived like a Syrian. Nor have I lived like a Syrian or a Yugoslavian living in bombed-out cities that were in concert, constant hazard all the time and incapable of making things better for themselves until a stabilization process came into place that would again bring you out of the rubble and bring you up to the standards that we enjoy right now in the West. So we, we don't have folks as hard as SF soft guys. I salute you, our brothers. As hard as you guys are, you are not supported, assimilated, nor asked to live in condition for years on end, raising partisan forces behind enemy lines in a way in which your life is in danger all the time, 24-7, not simply from combat, but simply from malnutrition or you got the wrong water or whatever the case may be. I am all ears for members of my audience, and I know some of you guys are soft guys. I thank you for listening. I know that some of you may have a repost to this, or you may say, oh, no, we, we, we have the long loiter primitive conditions capability to raise enemy partisan forces behind enemy lines. Remember, I'm being very specific here. 
please write me and correct me if you think that we have that. Because I'm here to tell you, I would suggest we do not have it. America spends approximately $1 trillion a year now. I think the last defense authorization was or is going to be $882 billion. They're still fighting about that. The reason I call it a trillion dollars is because DOE, the Department of, of Energy, is the one in charge of a lot of the nuclear weaponry, as it were. They get a significant chunk of the budget, and a lot of that is military-focused or military-controlled, except the DOE handles the nuclear material. Also, in addition, we have 15 members of the intelligence community in the United States, CIA being one of them. CIA has a paramilitary ground branch that draws a lot of its talent stacks from soft forces in the military, maybe draws it from others, but the majority of their forces are drawn from military soft. So there's something of a subsidy there by the military for those kind of operations. Then, of course, we have the NSA and the expense of that, but then again, that's under the umbrella of the intelligence community in the United States. As you all know, I don't predict, I forecast. Forecasting just so happens to have a lower evidentiary bar where I'll probably be wrong. Maybe I won't be wrong. But prediction, I think, is very hubristic. So I'm forecasting here. I think America and its allies are headed for a near-peer-peer conflict in 2, 5, 10, 15 years. Will it be the cross-strait invasion by the Chinese? Will it be Russia? Will it be India? Will it be a black swan that suddenly appears out of nowhere where we're fighting somebody we never intended to fight? Remember, before World War II, we had war plans coded by color to fight almost every country on the globe to include Canada and Great Britain. Now, with that in mind, wouldn't one want to have the ability to conduct UW, unconventional warfare, against near-peer and peer nations, and have the ability to raise partisan forces in their rear areas. Now, we're addressing partisan forces as simply conducting military activities. I don't want to restrict myself to that, because I think that with hybrid and gray zone warfare, you may want to have people on the ground within these countries who conduct sabotage, who conduct electronic surveillance, who conduct cyberspace activities, or any number of things. I mean, imagine if Russia was entertaining partisan warfare behind enemy lines, or China. In the United States, what happens to our grid infrastructure in America if it just so happens they have made the hybrid and gray zone plans to come into the country in very few numbers, very low density numbers, and just play very savage games with the electronic infrastructure, whether it's nuclear, whether it's coal-fired, whether it's transmission lines, whether it's transformers, whether it's EV charging stations, you name it. Is there any of that in a war with a near-peer or peer competitor that would put us in the hazard if it were attacked, technically, behind enemy lines? Of course it is. So we should be considering that as a country. So I stand by my assertion. We have no unconventional warfare capability in America or the West to conduct stay-behind, long-loiter, partisan-raising operations by soft personnel in America. And please keep in mind, my podcast is devoted to the examiner of Vanilla Soft. I don't look at Black Soft. I don't look at Tier 1. I don't look at all of those because the lack of information for me, 
that I can build a single most accurate picture. It's just not good enough. So maybe at tier one and these black organizations, there are tier one capabilities that can very well do this kind of thing. My suspicion, if I know government well enough, is that is not the case, and they are fully incapable of doing it. So again, I repeat, America is incapable, and the West, of doing this enterprise. So that concludes this episode. Part two will cover counter-unconventional warfare, where I will entertain Colonel Maxwell's assignations and some other stuff that we're going to talk about in the next episode. And I suspect that next episode will be in the new year. So with that, I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your listenership. And I really appreciate the fact that I get folks writing to me who are rational, intelligent, and really make me smarter than I was before I started talking to them. So we will chat next year. Thanks again. My email is cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. This is Bill, out.